0: Today is our second-to-last stop in uh, Volume 3 of Luke regarding Jesus' journey to Jerusalem to, uh, to ultimately die on the cross and then be raised again back to life. Um, we're going to go today from Chapter 18, verse 9, all the way to Chapter 19, verse 10. We're going to get a big uh, sweep of, of passages, uh, and we're going to end up stopping in Jericho, which is this city that's just a, 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 little, a small walk, really, from Jerusalem. Um, and uh, next week, we'll see Jesus actually arrive at Jerusalem, at his destination. Now, as Luke chronicles these last few passages before the journey comes to an end, he throws everything he can to underscore his major themes. Themes like uh, the, the nature of repentance as the basis of saving faith, uh, the danger of trusting in money or worldliness, um, the constant surprising ministry of Jesus, on how it, uh, it, it keeps shocking people and making them go, this is not at all what I expected. Um, good news to the poor. And by poor, we mean uh, in the Greek, patachos, people who have nothing. It doesn't mean that they don't have money. It just means that they come before God and they can't stand on anything, boast in anything or offer anything. They just know that they fall short and anything that they try to bargain with him would be an insult. So they come before him with nothing. They come before him Poor. The universality of the gospel—you know—that idea that uh, it's not just Jews that are saved; Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, men and women, uh, adults, children—Jesus um, is Savior to all, to anyone who uh, who repents and believes. That's that's all wrapped in the nature of saving faith. All of that. So in today's passages, we're going to see all these different stories that that again pull out these themes. To lay him out before Jesus actually gets to Jerusalem and shocks the original audience from 2,000 years ago when this was written, shocks the original audience with the, with the event of his death because they never expected that. But it prepares the reader for all of this because, uh, because the author keeps setting this up. And he says, salvation is not at all what you expected. It's always surprising. It's always something that's a little bit different. Uh, and so what we're going to look at today are not, um, uh, they're not stories about miracles. They're not teachings about moral lessons on how to do this or that. All of them really target the issue of salvation. Luke wants you to get this idea of salvation before Jesus arrives at Jerusalem and does his saving work. It's this relentless repeating barrage of salvation stories. One of them is a parable. One of them is like this, this... object lesson illustration thing another one's a contrast between one guy and then like the apostles another one uh, is, is a prediction of what jesus will do and then you'll get two clear examples of salvation but all of this has to do with salvation each one is really there to underscore all of luke's themes and i've given them different headings to try to showcase some of their distinctive features now they all really share one big point which is just to go salvation is not what you expected. So Jesus is saving people that you didn't think were were savable. People that, that the Jews would not have have thought, oh, let's go and save them. That's really the big point. But I've separated these, these six moments uh, to try to highlight these unique features uh, of salvation. So th- again, the question that these passages all answer is: what kind of people does Jesus save? Who, who will he save? Or more properly, whom does he save? And we'll get six ways to answer that question, okay? So let's put it up on the board. Uh, Your six ways. First is how you view yourself. That's going to matter. Whom does Jesus save? Well, it depends. How you view yourself is going to matter in chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Second is how you approach God. How you approach God, which is verses 15 to 17. And then third is how much Jesus is worth to you. That's verses 18 to 30. Fourth is what you believe. That's verses 31 to 34. Fifth is how you react to Jesus's mercy. That's verses 35 to 43. And then finally, sixth is how you deal with your past. And that's chapter 19, verses one through 10. Right, if you take all of these, these are are all distinctive features of of saving faith. There's gonna be something here, that something elemental about every believer So let's start with how you view yourself. Uh, Chapter 18, verse 9, it starts like this Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You can see at that little punchline at the end there that Jesus expects this story to be surprising. The passage is commonly used to talk about having a humble heart when you pray, how you should pray. Uh, it's one of the best passages on prayer, and so I think that that's a fantastic uh place to go in the Bible to talk about prayer and our hearts before the Lord. But for our purposes, watching what the author Luke is doing, with the original author to the original audience in its original context and meaning and intention, he is not actually giving us a lesson on prayer, he's giving us a lesson on salvation. Verse 14 is the whole point. Jesus says, "I tell you, this man went down to his house justified." rather than the other. He doesn't say, I tell you, this man went down to his house having prayed properly. He doesn't say that. This man went down to his house justified, declared righteous, forgiven, not guilty, saved. The humility in his prayer is indicative, not just of a, a, a proper prayer, but really of saving repentant faith. This is a lesson about salvation, which is equally or more so important than a lesson on prayer. What is the obvious difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector? Well, it's the way that they approach God in their prayer. You can see it. Now, it's not weird that the Pharisee is standing at the temple when he's praying. That's not weird. That's normal. That's, you know, Pharisees would do that normally and stuff. It's, it's uh, typical. But Jesus intentionally uses that to contrast with the tax collector who stands far away and he won't even look up to heaven. He bows his head as a sign of humility. That's kind of a tradition that we adopt. The Pharisee boasts of his moral and religious uprightness, right? He's like, I fast twice a week and I tithe everything that I get. He names all that stuff out because he's glad that he's not like other sinful people. He's not like other sinners, you know, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, all that stuff, right? He's glad he's not like them. And it's ironic because it's supposed to be a prayer, To a holy and righteous God, but the Pharisee's praying, thanks that I am holy and righteous. Right? Do you you get that tone from him? He's saying, God, thanks that I am me. Thanks for the way that I act. Meanwhile, the tax collector's whole spiritual posture can be summed up in his single sentence. God, be merciful to me. A sinner. He doesn't thank God for what he is. I don't think that's a prayer that you can pray quickly. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In Jesus' name, amen. I think you have to just like sit in that. He knows he falls short. He's not proud. He's not confident before the Lord. He doesn't compare himself to other people. He doesn't have anything to offer, anything to stand on anything to boast in he just pleads for mercy and that is the right heart to pray to god because that's the only kind of faith that saves he doesn't go god thanks that i'm the way that i am if anything he's pleading for mercy and when he receives it you know this is a hypothetical story that jesus is telling it's a parable but were he to receive it then he would thank god for who god is The Pharisee justifies himself. God does nothing for that. The the Pharisee remains condemned by God. But the tax collector, with the spirit of condemning himself, comes in repentance, pleading for mercy. And God looks upon him and, and justifies him. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now maybe you and I don't really feel the impact of this story since we don't have Pharisees, and then in our society tax collectors aren't like they weren't like the national traders and everything that they were back then in, in, in Israel. So when we read Luke, by now we already know that the Pharisees are the bad guys, uh, and Jesus is saving the repentant. You know he's he's interacted with several tax collectors, and so we're we're not surprised. That a tax collector is not the hero, it's not the hero of the story, but he's at least the one that has the happy ending. So, what I I wanna do is, uh, it's not something that I normally do, but I wanna modernize this for you a little bit, okay? Uh, We're gonna gonna adapt this to try to adjust it for today and what it would sound like today. Uh, This is my best attempt to try to tell it the way that it would be told today if Jesus were walking around today, okay? Uh, imagine that Jesus was, uh, was telling a story and he just says two people went to church, a pastor and a rapist. Or you can, you can switch that out with a pastor and a serial killer or a wife abuser, uh, a racist supremacist. Put in whatever sin you want, whatever you think is absolutely deplorable. Because in Israel, there were sinners and then, with their own special category, there were tax collectors. That was the worst. So you take whatever's the worst and you put that there. Let's go with pastor and rapist, because that disturbs me. And I think that this parable would have disturbed the original. Audience. Excuse me, the original audience. Two people went to church to pray: a pastor and a rapist. The pastor Is that? That's not battery. It's not battery. Okay. Two people went to church to pray. The pastor and a rapist. The pastor prays. God, thank you that I'm not like that guy. I give offering. I serve every week. I lead small groups. But the rapist won't even enter the worship room. And he won't look up. He beats his breast. Saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then imagine Jesus says, I tell you, this rapist went down to his house justified rather than that pastor. I don't know. Like, do you do you feel the outrage about that? Do you hate the idea that someone like that could be saved just because he said sorry to God? And he doesn't give a cheap apology. He gives a sincere one. But doesn't it feel wrong to you that someone like that should be forgiven for so wicked of a crime? And don't you feel like that person doesn't deserve it? And then don't you also feel like, but it's okay that you are forgiven? I think this is where we are exposed. This is where we discover that perhaps we self justify. We believe we. Kind of qualify for this. We, we kind of deserve salvation. And that guy doesn't. Why did Jesus tell this parable? It's a parable not about prayer, but about salvation. Why did he tell it? Well, look again at verse 9, because he tells you why he told it. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Those are not two different things. Those are the same thing. They uh, they trusted in themselves that they were righteous, treated others with contempt. Two sides of the same coin. The original intent of the story is not to teach you about prayer. It's to warn you about a false faith that will land you squarely in hell. Those who find themselves righteous and treat others with contempt are not saved they don't get the gospel they're so close maybe they got all this theology in their heads but they are exposed it is revealed they don't believe salvation is by grace and forgiveness and mercy they believe you have to qualify Whom, then, does Jesus save? He saves those who come with no boasts, no right to compare to worse sinners. He saves those who come with only pleas for mercy, as sinners who need forgiveness. A second uh, type of thing to consider on whom does Jesus save is uh, how you approach God. Verse 15 to 17. It says, now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called uh, them to him, saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, uh, what is this about, right? This is about children and how the kingdom of God belongs to them. You want to enter? Be like them. Be like children. Uh, This this is also a startling startling lesson about who is saved, since children were of low status in Israel's uh, society. Uh, Who will be saved? Who will be in the kingdom of God? Those Those are the same thing. Who will be in the kingdom? Who will be saved? And Jesus says, children, babies, toddlers, kids... That oddly answers the question on, like, what happens to babies or children who die. They are taken to heaven. Uh, yeah, they didn't do anything for it. Um, and surprise, neither did you. Right? You are saved by grace, and so are they. But they don't deserve it. Well, yeah, neither did you. But it launches so many other questions, like, okay, if children go to heaven when they die, but adults go to hell for their sins, at what point, you know, at what point is a child held accountable for his sin? What is the age of accountability? That, that moment when someone is developmentally now at a point where God says, you are held accountable. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I have opinions on it. That's not the point of, uh, of the passage right now. But, so I want to get away from the issue of age. I, wanna, I want you to know that, that something like that exists. You know, Children are safe in the arms of God, and then at some point they're held accountable for their sins, and unless they repent, they will be condemned for their sins. But let's get away from the issue of age. Why are children saved? Why? Well, because what's a child like? Well, a child is, uh, is trusting, dependent. Uh, there's this absence of superiority of judging others when you're an infant, when you can't talk, you can't walk, you know, you don't have that, that kind of mindset. You don't know what it's like to compare, right? That's not, that's not in your mind. You're just dependent on your parents. So you haven't really committed any sins yet. You don't have sinful intents. You are sinful by nature. You haven't yet committed something with this malicious intent. You know, there's just, there's just instinct. There's no reasoned principle that's violated knowingly or anything like that. It's so interesting that people want Jesus to touch their children, you know, to touch the, the children, because that was a way of accepting and affirming and blessing them. In that society, children were dirty, noisy, rowdy, and unworthy. And in 2,000 years, nothing has changed about that. Children are not clean. They're not proper. They're not, they're not well put together. They're, they're chaos, wrapped in flesh Little pods of anarchy growing in your house. And then Jesus uh, just goes, you know, he says this thing. He doesn't say, um, he, doesn't, he doesn't command you, you have to have faith like a child. He doesn't really say it like that. He more like gives a description more than a command. He says, if you don't have faith like a child, you, you can't be saved. It's it's an indicative. It's not not an imperative. It's, It's a small difference, but one that ought to make us examine ourselves to see if this describes us, rather than trying to just add on a task to do. A child clings to his or her parents in almost any emotion. When a child is mad they scream and they walk over to their parents to kind of let the parents know like they're mad about something so that the parents will do something about it. When a child is sad, they cry and immediately run to a parent. When a child is happy, laughs, and looks over to the parent. When a child is afraid, immediately tries to take shelter under a parent. Even when a child is guilty, goes to a parent. It's an interesting instinct. It's no wonder James 5 tells us to do basically exactly that, even though we're adults. Look at James 5, verse 13 and 14. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Like, as in, go to God, go to the Father. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise, meaning go to God, go to the Father. Is anyone um, among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, meaning... Uh, if Are you sick? Are you like unwell? Have someone else come and take you to God, take you to the Father in prayer. This is the, uh, the, the childlike faith we ought to have, this dependent, trusting faith. So whom does Jesus save? He saves people who approach God like children, like a child, with trust, dependence, need, desperation, wanting love and affirmation from him. Those who turn to God to praise when they're happy or to cry out when they're sad, to plead when they're fearful, to be soothed when they're angry or to confess when they're guilty. Whom does Jesus save? The people that turn to God in every moment. Who else does Jesus save? Well, it depends on how much it's worth to you. That's a third factor to look at, how much it's worth to you. Uh, verse 18 is going to start with the word and, because Jesus just said you have to have faith like a child, and then this guy kind of comes up and, and uh, starts this, this next part. So it's in the same little moment going on. The moment is connected to, to Jesus saying you have to be like a child in order to be saved. You have to be dependent and trusting, etc. So this guy, he's a rich, young ruler, right? He's going to respond to this. Matthew 19 says he's young. Uh, Here in Luke, you're going to find out that he's very rich, and he is a ruler of some sort. A ruler as in an archon in the Greek, which is specifically, oftentimes, a religious ruler, probably a synagogue ruler. Or he could be like a a member of the Sanhedrin. But in like uh, chapter 8, verse 41 of this book, there's a guy named Jairus. He's a synagogue archon, ruler. All right, verse 18. And a ruler, an archon, a, a ruler asked Jesus... Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life, right? Verse 19, and Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler said, Yeah, 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 all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to the rich young ruler, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Okay, so I, I want to stop there for a sec. I, I, I love the way this conversation starts, you know, the whole good teacher, what must I do to have uh, to inherit eternal life? Meaning, what must I do to be saved? Um, good teacher is, uh, it, it's an unusually polite uh, greeting, probably to convey Uh, to Jesus that even though this guy's a religious ruler, he's saying like, but you're a good teacher. Like you're, you're, you're trusted. You are true. You're, uh, you're good. Like God is good. He uses the same kind of word that the Bible uses for God. Uh, Good teacher. So he's trying to say that, you know, like there are plenty of religious leaders don't support you, but I I think you're a good teacher. I think you're the real deal. That's, that's what he's trying to say. And Jesus's response is that only God is good. Now, (laughs) Uh, he 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 goes, only God is good. And he's like, follow, follow the Ten Commandments. And he names commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. They're found in Exodus 20. If you're curious about that, we have a, a series on the Ten Commandments. It's only 34 weeks, and you can reference that. We'll talk to you sometime next year when you're done with it. If, uh, if, you, if, if you watch this, though, Jesus doesn't mention... Commandments one, two, three, or 4, which are all about your relationship with God, and he doesn't mention commandment number 10, which is about coveting, about material wealth dependence and, uh, and craving. Uh, those are the sins that this guy is guilty of. When Jesus says, only God is good, uh, I don't want you to be too distracted. Uh, like, could this be a hint about the Trinity? Like, you know, uh, the, the guy goes up to Jesus and goes, Jesus, good teacher. And Jesus goes, huh? Only God is good, so if I'm good, I must be God, right? It could be this hint about the Trinity. I don't think that's the primary intent. If anything, that's like this implied little tone that Jesus did for fun, right? I think that the the major intent is he goes, only God is good, meaning everyone else is bad, fall short, sinful, unworthy. Only God is good. And then he goes, follow the commandments. And the guy goes, yeah, I do. Which means he's saying, yeah, I'm, I'm good. Right? You know, I, I keep all the commandments. He doesn't go, well, my relationship with God or covenant. He doesn't say any of that. He's like, I do everything. Yeah, I'm good. But Jesus just set him up. He said, only God is good. Everyone falls short. Everyone's guilty of something. So follow the commandments. He's like, I follow them all. I'm not guilty. I'm good. Just like God. No, he's not. Only God is good. Our standard of goodness, oftentimes, is just being better than someone else. Being better than that really scummy person over there. Jesus thinks higher than that. Uh, I, I like the things that he says in the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. He says in Matthew 5, verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness, and he's talking to a whole bunch of people, Um, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, right? Unless you are more righteous than the Pharisees, the Pharisees who did all, like, thousands of laws and commandments, they followed them to the T. In chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus goes, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that's kind of what this guy says. He's like, yeah, 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 I do that. You have to be more righteous than the Pharisees. You have to be perfect. That's, that's not just a behavior thing. It's a heart thing. If you read the, re, uh, the rest of chapter 5 of Matthew there, you know, he starts attacking the heart. He's like, don't just murder. Uh, I'm not saying don't murder. I'm saying don't even hate people. It's not don't commit adultery. Don't even lust, etc. cetera. He, he starts going after the heart. This rich young ruler doesn't get any of that. He doesn't see what he's lacking. The issue of the heart belonging to God. The heart being surrendered to Jesus valuing jesus more than anything else he doesn't get that that's what he lacks so he's asking what do i have to do what do i have to do he thinks he just has to do something and jesus is like you don't you don't love me more than everything else you don't you don't think i am worth more than all your stuff whatever else you think is uh security or happiness is it worth more than jesus Jesus says to to sell everything and give it to the poor. And that, by the way, that's a very uh, specific instruction to this guy. Jesus doesn't tell every Christian to sell all your stuff and give it all to the poor. He doesn't doesn't say that to every Christian. That's not uh, a universal instruction. What he says to this guy is, sell your stuff, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Right? If you do this, you will have this. Is it worth it? And then come follow me. If you sell all your stuff, give it to the poor. And he's talking specifically to this guy because this guy struggles with materialism, with his wealth. So selling all your stuff, giving to the poor, is not a magic formula for getting to heaven. If you if you just give a lot to charity, you don't go to heaven just because you're you're a good person. It's not that. But to uh, to give up your stuff in obedience to Jesus, to do that, trusting that He is right when He says. Treasure in heaven is better than the stuff on earth. When you trust that, that's faith. When you go, but I'll have Jesus and I'll be with Jesus, I could follow Jesus, that is better than having all this stuff and staying home. If you can repent of your faith in money and trust that Jesus has something better in store for you, then you can follow him. Until you do that, until you deny yourself, until you give up whatever else you think is security and happiness. You cannot follow him. So just like the previous two passages, this is about salvation. Whom does Jesus save? The ones who give up everything to follow him. Verse uh, 23. But when the rich young ruler heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. That's too bad. This guy was very moral, very religious, a religious ruler. He, he was a church leader, and he had a lot of money. So he probably he was probably you know a big financial help to the community in, in that way. But he wasn't saved. He loved his wealth more than Jesus and he believed his money was worth more than whatever Jesus was peddling. That money was his God. That's what he thought was worth more, worshipped it. Possession was his idol. That's how he thought he could control his life. He falsely worshipped the Lord, walking around saying he he wants eternal life he worshiping Yahweh God but he did not truly find God to be of infinite worth he never rested from his pursuit of wealth that was his unending pursuit and he coveted that's probably what got him his extreme riches And that's probably why he won't follow Jesus at this point. Those are commandments 1, 2, 3, 4, and 10, the one that Jesus didn't mention. That's where he lacks, that's where he didn't see it. He saw where he was good, not where he was bad. But it gets to this, uh, this interesting moment. It's going gonna, it's gonna to flip to a contrast here, okay? Let's look at verse 24. Jesus is going to make a statement here real fast. Jesus, seeing that the rich young ruler had become sad, Jesus said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it, all the crowd, those who heard it, said, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. This is such a weird conversation to me, right? It's easier for camels to go through the eye of a needle than for rich people to be saved. That's, that's Jesus saying it's impossible for a rich person to be saved. And everybody hears it. They know it. They get it. It's impossible. And so they're like, well, then who can be saved? And they say that because uh, it was jarring to them. The Jews believed that the rich people were blessed by God. You're rich because God favors you. So then if Jesus is saying rich people can't even get to heaven, then they're like, well, then who can? The rich people are the ones God loves the most. If the rich can't be saved, then no one can. And Jesus goes, well, what's impossible with man is possible with God. What is that? What is that? Well, it's to say that you can't save yourself. The rich person can't, the poor person can't. Nobody can, right? How are you going to be saved? How are you going to get uh, inherit eternal life? You can't. God has to save you. Do you notice that the, the language that they use, what must I do to enter the kingdom, to inherit eternal life? The way that the Jews understood these, this idea of being with God for eternity, they didn't use the word salvation all that much. They used this, enter the kingdom. Okay, what do I do to enter the kingdom? What do I do to inherit eternal life? They didn't say, how do I get saved? Because I'm doomed. What must I do to be saved? Well, you have to trust God, trust Jesus. More than yourself, more than your stuff. Those won't save you. You can't. You have better chances of uh, of a camel going through the eye of a needle than you and your stuff and all the amassed property that you've put together and all the the name and acclaim that you've put for yourself. It's not going to work. Those won't save you. God will. It's impossible with man. Accrue as much wealth as you can. It's not going to work. God saves you. The rich young ruler was unwilling to give up everything to follow Jesus because he's like, this is where my security is. This is where my happiness is. This is where I will feel fulfilled. But what about Peter and the other apostles? What about the 12 apostles, right? Uh, They were working, being fishermen or tax collectors or zealots and all that stuff. And then now they're homeless and they're wandering around as peasants following Jesus. So verse 28, Peter said, see, Jesus, we have left our homes and followed you. Like, we did what you just told this rich young ruler to do. We left everything and followed you. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. What's going on there is the 12 apostles, they left everything to follow Jesus. Jesus says, uh, uh, everything you lose to follow him is worth it like everything that was holding you back from following him. If it, was, if it was your family members saying, don't follow Jesus, and you left your family to follow Jesus. If it was all, your career holding you back from following Jesus, so you left your career to follow Jesus. If you gave that up, he says, it'll be worth it. You'll receive so much more even in this life and then eternal life in the, in the age to come, right? You'll receive so much more even now. And he's not talking about like you'll get so much more money back, more properties he's not he's trying he's not trying to bait you with your your greed he's saying you'll have peace with God you'll have true morals you'll have a life-giving community you'll have strength to endure any storm you'll you'll have true joy but you, you really got to let go of the world for you to even receive that and it's so hard that's that's the leap of faith isn't it When it comes to your stuff, your money, your property, your status, your pride, your health, etc., you'll have infinitely better, eternally better when you're with Jesus. Do you think your health and your image and your body is going to be better now or in the kingdom? Or your money is worth more now or in the kingdom? Your status even, your reputation, worth more now or in the kingdom? It says, Jesus said to the rich young ruler, give up everything that you have uh, and understand that Jesus is worth it. That treasure in heaven is better. Then you can follow him. So whom does Jesus save? It's the people who give up anything to follow Jesus because he is worth it all and infinitely more. A fourth thing on, on uh, whom does Jesus save it comes down to what you believe. What you believe. Uh, verses 31 to 34. And taking the twelve, the twelve apostles, Jesus said to them, See, we're going to Jerusalem, in case you forgot. See, we're going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they, the twelve apostles, understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Okay, this is the third time Jesus explicitly predicts his death on the cross in Jerusalem in that manner. You know, I'm going to be delivered over to the the chief priests and elders in Jerusalem. He says that stuff in chapter 9, verse 22, in chapter 9, verse 44 and 45, Okay. But Luke has also implied it in many other times. He's kind of written these little moments where Jesus kind of says something that says he's going to suffer and then there's glory and all that stuff. Chapter 5, verse 35, chapter 12, verse 49 and 50, uh, uh, chapter 13, verses 20, uh, 32 and 33, and uh, chapter, uh, that's possibly the chapter 13 one, maybe. That might be an expression. But uh, chapter 17, verse 25. There are a lot of places where Luke has been like throwing down these little things, where like he's implying Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem to be crucified, and that has to happen in order for Jesus to uh, to save everyone. So this isn't new to the readers. It's it's stuff that's that's very overt. Jesus's repeated predictions show that his upcoming death is not a surprise to him. He's not like whoa, why am I being crucified? This is this is getting out of hand. It, none of that happens, right? He, he walks into Jerusalem knowing exactly what the plan is. That's the plan. He knew about it. He willingly walked into it to pull off what he was going to do. In chapter 9, it said that the Jewish elders, chief priests, and the teachers of the law are the ones that are going to hand him over to be killed. And then here in chapter 18, it says that the Gentiles are the ones that will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and they will be the ones who actually kill him. So Jews and Gentiles alike are both in this against Jesus. And verse 34 says the disciples couldn't understand it. They couldn't get it. And that's like, what kind of a didn't understand is it? Well, they understand the words. If Jesus goes, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die, they understand what that means. They're not like, what, what, what is that word? They know what that means, but they don't get the, the meaning of it or the reason for it. Or like, well, is this supposed to be literal or cryptic, figurative, allegorical, symbolic, metaphorical? What is this? Right? Jesus says, I'm going to die in Jerusalem. And they're like, how would that accomplish God's will? How is that victory? Do you think he means something other than die? Like, you know, die to yourself. You don't really die. Right? So what does he mean, Um, you know, take up your cross? You're not actually taking up a cross. So is is he just being like that? They didn't get it. And they didn't get it because it was kind of hidden from them. You know, God didn't yet reveal it to them because God has to be an active participant. He has to be the one. There's got to be a, a work of the Holy Spirit to help you even realize your need for salvation. Why would Jesus have to die? Why, how is that victory? And yet this is a fulfillment of prophecy, says Jesus, right? Uh, it's, it's something that, that the prophets have been writing about throughout the Old Testament. And throughout Luke, especially the first two chapters, you just see that Jesus keeps being this fulfillment of prophecy in so many different ways. Uh, Jerusalem has been identified as the city of his destiny for some time. We've all noticed that by now. And this plan, all of this suffering must come before glory. All of that's been mentioned uh, so many times. Even last chapter, in chapter 17, verse 25. So the disciples are in disbelief. They don't get it. Like they, they they hear the words and they're like that doesn't really make sense though why would he die that doesn't seem like that's gonna bring the kingdom the Messiah is supposed to defeat the nations and then establish a kingdom dying doesn't seem to meet those those criteria so they didn't get it it's always this surprising thing about salvation it's always unexpected. You know, there's a way that we think like, oh, there's so many prophecies in the Bible about Jesus and the crucifixion. So it should make it obvious that that Jesus is the Messiah. How come the Jews don't believe that he's the Messiah? It's so obvious. But there's a lot that conflicts with everything that they were waiting on the Messiah for. And even when when Jesus came, he like kind of, he fulfills the law. He finishes it, right? He's like, okay, I'm going to follow it perfectly, great, and then the wages of sin against the law, like breaking the law, is death. And I'm going to fulfill that even. I'm going I'm to die for everybody who's guilty of the law. He dies. And then he, he comes back to life because he's greater than the power of sin. And after he does that, now the law, it still exists to, to tell you, where, uh, you know, what's good and, and evil and stuff like that. But he, he gets rid of all the ceremonial stuff that symbolically pointed to him. He gets rid of things like circumcision, the Sabbath laws, the food laws right? All those, those, those dietary restrictions, the sacrificial system, because he was the ultimate sacrifice that it was all pointing to. He gets rid of all of that. So the Jews would be like, how is this the Messiah? He's getting rid of all of our things. He's redefining worship. So it's not so obvious to them. Jesus changed the nature and manner of worship altogether on the cross. It was going to take some time for Israel to process this. People were worshiping him at this this time, thinking, oh, he's a miracle worker. He can make food. He can heal people, bring them back to life, get rid of illness, cast out demons. He could do all this. They try to force him to be king at certain points in his ministry. They they think this is the guy. He's going to subdue the nations. He's going to bring the kingdom. And they didn't know he would first come to solve the spiritual problem and then would later return to solve the national problem. They will eventually get it, though, the, the 12 apostles. They will understand eventually, why Jesus suffered and died. They'll understand the plan. But see, this is a foundation on what to believe about Jesus. It's a foundation. That's why Jesus keeps telling them. And then he's going to illuminate them. He's going to reveal it to them in chapter 24. So you kind of have to wait for the payoff after he dies and his back to life. You have to wait for that. But this is necessary. Whom does Jesus save? It's going to be those who know and believe that Jesus suffered and died to pay for their sins. In accordance with God's will in fulfillment of prophecy to save those who repent and believe in him. You have to believe that. You have to know that. Who else does Jesus save? Well, and he, he saves those uh, based on how they react to Jesus' mercy. On how they react to Jesus' mercy. Look at verse 35. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, the blind man inquired what this meant, and they told the blind man, oh, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And the blind man cried out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And... When the blind man came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Lord, let me recover my sight. So here's a clear picture of saving faith. A blind beggar cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, right? He doesn't complain. He doesn't go, Jesus, why is my life like this? Why am I blind? Other people should be blind. They're they're worse than I am. I'm not even a bad person. He doesn't do that. He doesn't compare. He just says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He cries for mercy. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. People try to stop him, and uh, he can let the fear of man dictate his decisions, but he doesn't. He is desperate for only what Jesus can do for him. He cries out all the more. He says, Messiah, save me right? Son of David. That is a Jewish title for Messiah. Messiah, save me. That's saving faith. How does he regard himself? Poor, in need of mercy. How does he approach God? Desperate, dependent, like a child. What does he believe? Well, he doesn't know about the cross yet, but he knows specifically that Jesus is the answer, by name, Jesus. This guy is blind but throughout the entire book of Luke, he is the only person that sees that Jesus is the Son of David. Like he, he puts it together. The, oh, that's the title in the scriptures. That's what the prophets called the Messiah. This guy's the fulfillment of that. Jesus, son of David. The blind guy is the only one that sees this. So Jesus asked, what do you want? You know, what do you want me to do for you? And the man very honestly says, I just want to see. And Jesus is like, I'm going to do so much more than that. Verse 42, Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has uh so you. Your faith has saved you. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This, throughout that, you know, this whole uh, journey to Jerusalem, from chapter 9, verse 51, all the way through uh, to chapter 19. This is the fourth and final miracle that happens in the journey. Most of the journey has been like teaching moments and stuff. People are amazed because a blind man can see. But, but this bigger thing that happened was spiritual, not physical. Jesus says the blind man's faith made him well. Literally, your, your faith has saved you. Uh, the man asked for mercy, and that's exactly what he received. And then as, like a, as a cherry on top, he also gets to see. He, he received healing on top of Mercy. Jesus gave him mercy, he forgave his sins, he saved his soul. And the man didn't go, well, who cares about the, the, oh, your faith has saved you, oh, who cares? He didn't do that, right? He doesn't go, I can see, yeah, whatever with the faith has made you well, you know, he doesn't, he, he is blown away by the mercy of God. Right? He can see, he can just run off and do his thing. You know, like 10 lepers ran off and then only one came back to give thanks. This guy, he doesn't leave Jesus' side. He keeps following him. Now that he can see, what does he do with this vision? He just locks it onto Jesus and stays with him, following him, glorifying God. He followed Jesus. Whom did Jesus save? It's those who react to Jesus' mercy by praising and glorifying God and following Jesus. That's the immediate reaction to the mercy of God. In view of God's mercy, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing. Finally, uh, when it comes to whom did Jesus save, uh, the last thing we want to look at is how you deal with your past. How you deal with your sinful past, specifically. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. And when they, the people all around, when they saw it, they all grumbled. They all grumbled. They all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. I like this scene because Zacchaeus was a wee little man. He's short. Uh, I can relate. I was the shortest kid in my class all the way up until my junior year of high school. I know what it's like to be short. You want to see something, and all you see are people's backs. It's frustrating. Life is uh, is disappointing for much of the time. And he's also a chief tax collector, which means that he's a higher officer, a higher office than uh, the tax collector we met in chapter five, Levi, also known as Matthew. He was an extortionist that worked for Rome, and he had other extortionists working for him. There's nothing here that says that Zacchaeus was repentant. He wanted to see Jesus, but who didn't, right? Jesus was a—he was a miracle worker. He was a magician. He was—he was, he was uh, supernatural. Who didn't want to see him? What's really surprising isn't the fact, though, that this corrupt tax collector wants to see Jesus. It's the fact that Jesus wants to see Zacchaeus. Like he's seeking him out. Hey, Zacchaeus he looks up in a tree. You, I'm supposed to hang out with you in your house today, right now. So hurry up. You're late. It is, of course, no surprise that, uh, that the people were outraged and shocked that Jesus would go to a tax collector's house to eat with them. There's always something shocking about salvation. It happened when Jesus uh, visited Levi in chapter 5. Everybody was like, what is this? Why would he do that? And then in chapter 15, uh, you know, all these tax collectors and prostitutes are hanging around Jesus, and so people get mad, and so Jesus launches these three parables about the lost sheep, lost coin, the lost, uh, lost son. It's like this recurring thing. It's happening here in Jericho now, which is right next to Jerusalem. They're close to capital city. They're deep in Pharisee territory, and Jesus is not pulling his punches. He's hanging out with the worst sinner that you could hang out with, And everybody's mad. Well, uh, Jesus has clearly shown Zacchaeus uh, an incalculable degree of grace. They eat together. We can assume they have good conversation because all of a sudden, at some point during dinner, Zacchaeus is going to just stand up and start blurting something out, which is right here in verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord! The half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Contrast that, by the way, with the rich young ruler. That that man had to be told what to do and wouldn't do it. This guy, Zacchaeus, he just stands up and goes, okay, I'm giving my money away. Half of it goes to the poor. And then if, if, if I cheated anyone, I'm going to give him four times back as much, right? Uh, he volunteers it because he just knows Jesus is worth it. He doesn't want the sinful money anymore, the money that he got by, uh, by dishonest gain or by malicious gain. Zacchaeus regarded himself as a sinner. He, know, he knows he defrauded people. He approached Jesus with joyful obedience, submissively and, and humbly. You know, Jesus is called Jesus kind of throughout this story until it gets to this moment uh, in, in verse 8, and then Zacchaeus stands up and calls him Lord. He doesn't call him by his first name, he calls him Lord because he's saying, We're not on this first name basis, we're not equals. You're Lord. Jesus is worth all his stuff. There was no moaning or groaning about how much he has to pay. You know what, I have to give offering? Oh, come on. There's none of that. He volunteers it. He reacts to Jesus' mercy with that act of now taking care of the people that Jesus cares about. He cares about the poor? I'm going to take care of the poor. He cares about people who suffer injustice? Well, I'm going to pay him back four times so that they, like this is good for them. What I find so interesting is that in repenting of his sin, he absolutely wants to make Restitution. He wants to make things right. That's how he deals with his past. It's not just giving half his money to the poor, you know, because you can be applauded for that. So exclude that moment. He gives money to the poor, great. But he also volunteers to pay back anyone that he cheated. He'll pay him back quadruple, right? He'll face his past. He will confess it. He will confront it. He will correct it. Whatever sin in the past. And that's so important because uh, the lawful amount to pay back someone you cheated was 20%. That's the law of restitution. That's the law of paying someone back, right? You, you broke your, the guy's cell phone. You pay back the worth of the cell phone plus 20%. That's what it would be. That's, that's written in Leviticus 5.16 and Numbers 5.7. That's restitution. What does Zacchaeus do? He's like, uh, I'm not going to do the 20% thing. I'm going to do 400%. So he's paying back 100 plus another 300%, right? He's, he's, he's exceeding the 20% by another 280. Why so much? Well, it could just be he's like super happy and he's making a rash decision. Maybe, could be that. I don't think it's that though. I think it's more of a calculated decision. I think uh, he's considering someone, uh, he's considering himself as someone who stole very valuable property without pity. Because scripture says when you steal something that's really valuable and you do it maliciously and without pity, then you have to pay back four or five times as much. For instance, I'll show you Exodus 22 verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep, those were uh, worth a lot at that time, uh, and, or, or kills it and, or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Right? If you're malicious about it and pitiless about it, then you have to pay back four or five times. It's not It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a miscommunication. That was like you just being a jerk. Then you have to pay back four or five times. In fact, uh, 2 Samuel 12, 6 is this conversation where David is uh, talking to the prophet Nathan, and he's accidentally condemning himself. But he's talking about what's the right penalty to pay and he's talking about this wicked man who turns out to be himself but he's like he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and he had no pity right because he was malicious he was sinful in his intention and so he has to pay back four times as much so here's Zacchaeus saying i'm going to pay back four times as much because this wasn't an accident and it wasn't a miscommunication this i was sinning against my people without pity I will pay back four times as much. I'll, I, I'm not going to beat the law of God. I'm going I'm to obey it. If, I mean, just imagine if, if he cheated you $500, you'd be ticked, right? But then he's like, I'm going to pay you back 2000 Then you'd be like, let's do this again sometime. <laughs> it's nice doing business with you. This is so honest of him. It's, that's repentance. He's not grabbing a free ticket to heaven and then jumping on the train and then giving everyone the middle finger like suckers. I just got all your money and I'm going to heaven. Ha <laughs> ha. Get wrecked. But right? he's not doing that. He, he knows what rebellion against the Lord is. It was sinful. He knows that he has, no, uh, he has no right to do that and that it has no place for the people of God. So he actively initiates confessing and confronting and correcting the sin of his past. He knows he's forgiven by God, but he has to then go and be reconciled so that he has peace with God and with man. Verse 9, and Jesus said to him, today, I love that he's saying it to him, to Zacchaeus. He's, He's not saying it to the people so much, he's saying it to Zacchaeus. So Zacchaeus knows, today salvation has come to this house since he also is the son of Abraham, and now he's expanded it. He says to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house. Then he tells the people, because this is the son of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham, he is a Jew. You think he's a traitor, but he's part of the people of God. For the son of man, verse 10, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Now, notice that salvation didn't come to Zacchaeus' house because he did good things. Zacchaeus came to this house because he gave to the poor. Nope. It came because he was a son of Abraham. So that, could very, that very easily means he's a biological Jew, and it's a, uh, it's a corrective for everyone to understand. He's part of the people of God now. But more likely, Jesus was saying, this man has real faith. What makes you a son of Abraham? Well, yes, biological Jew, that's one way, a physical descendant of Abraham. But what is a spiritual son of Abraham? Because something spiritual took place here. Well, Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. You kind of get that in Romans also. A son or a daughter or a child of Abraham is someone who repents of his sin and trusts in Jesus. And verse 10, that that thing in verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, that that acts as like the key verse of the whole book of Luke. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's the heart of Jesus' ministry. It's the starting point of how any believer views himself or herself. We know that we are lost. We are in need of rescue. It informs our approach to God that he seeks us first. We love him because he first loved us. Whom then does Jesus save? People who come with no boasts, no right to compare to worse sinners, only with pleas for mercy as sinners who need forgiveness. People who approach God when they're mad, when they're sad, when they're afraid, when they're happy when they're guilty with trust and dependence and need and wanting love and affirmation from him. People who know that Jesus suffered and died to pay for their sins in accordance with God's will and in fulfillment of prophecy. People who will give up anything to follow Jesus because that he, they know he is worth it all. People who react to Jesus' mercy by praising and glorifying him and people who actively initiate confessing, confronting, and correcting their sin in the past and in the present to be reconciled with God and with man. Whom then does Jesus save? Anyone who comes to him poor, ptachos, with nothing to offer, nothing to stand on, nothing to boast in but repents of his or her sin and trusts in the one and only Lord and Savior, Jesus. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we could stand amazed yet again to remember that grace is still amazing. Even after years of church, we can think that salvation is supposed to go a certain way and yet The reminders constantly surprise us at how lavish your love, how deep your grace. We pray, Lord, that we would have the same hearts because we can become so caught up with ourselves thinking that somehow we qualify and others don't. We think that the darkest and deepest of sinners can't be saved shouldn't be but that's not you you came to seek and save the lost you didn't save just because we walked up to you and cried out you sought us out before we could do anything while we were still weak while we were still enemies with you you sought us out And then you gave the invitation, you let us know who you are, what you're like. And so we cried out. And you received us, you forgave us, transform us. You grow us and you will one day glorify us with your glory. All because of you, not because of us. For only God is good we fall short. Thank you so much, Lord, for how you deal with us, not by our sins, but by your mercy. May that transform how we view ourselves, how we approach you, how much we think Jesus is worth, what we believe, how we react to your mercy, and how we deal with our past. Remind us again and again that you're a God of grace and you're a Savior. We pray all this for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.